Hello, good evening everyone and welcome to the LSE for this online event for a reparatory social science. Tonight's talk is the inaugural Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity keynote lecture and it is part of LSE's broad-ranging and justly acclaimed public lecture program. I'm Armina Ishkanian, and I'm the Executive Director of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program and Associate Professor in Social Policy at the London School of Economics. I'm also the co-convener of the Politics of Inequality research theme based at the International Inequalities Institute. I co convened that theme with Ellen Helsper. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Gurminder Bambra to the LSE today. Professor Bambra is a renowned scholar, and as you will hear tonight, a charismatic and compelling speaker. She is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex, and a Fellow of the British Academy. This evening, Professor Bambra will examine the extent to which social sciences are implicated in the reproduction of the very structures of inequality that are ostensibly their objects of concern. She will argue that this is partly the result of the social sciences failure to acknowledge the connected histories of one of their primary units of analysis, the modern nation state. Without putting such relations at the heart of our analysis, she argues we cannot address global inequality effectively. As I mentioned, this is the inaugural keynote lecture for the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program. This program is a funded fellowship that brings together activists, researchers, policymakers, and movement builders together at the LSE to share knowledge, insights, and hope. Putting together research and practice into dialogue is central to our mission as we build a global community of people who are challenging inequality. It is our hope that this annual lecture will provide an opportunity to extend the dialogue to the world beyond and to think, reflect, challenge, and question. For Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's events are hashtag LSC inequalities and hashtag Atlantic Fellows. This online event is being recorded and we aim to make it available as a video recording and as a podcast, subject there being no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be an opportunity for you to put your questions to our speaker. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I will pose as many questions as possible to the extent that time permits. I would be grateful if you would let us know your name and affiliation and where you are in the world. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni. Now, I am delighted to hand over to Professor Gurminder Bambra. Thank you so much, Amina, and thank you to AFSI as well for this invitation. I'm really pleased to be here and I look forward to the conversation that we'll have after the talk. The past few months have highlighted the many ways in which inequality structures the world. From the differing consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic within countries, to the disparities in vaccine rollout between countries. From politically organized hostility towards migrants and minorities, 
to the escalation of violence that produces refugees. From the elite capture of an ever-increasing share of global wealth to a global increase in poverty and destitution. And indeed, the interconnections between growth and depletion that are foundational to environmental degradation and climate catastrophe, both imminent and historical. The inequalities that mark and shape these different examples are not internal to countries or situations, but they transcend borders and limits. They are global both in terms of their contemporary configurations and their historical constitution. As such, they cannot be adequately captured in cross-national analyses or analyses on within-country or between-country differences. This is, however, the dominant focus of much academic work on the topic. Branko Milanovic, for example, regards global inequality as the sum of all national inequalities. Thomas Piketty similarly organizes his historical comparative analyses in terms of inequality within nations, and yet the political entities he discusses were rarely nations over the long durée. Mike Savage in his recent book, The Return of Inequality, argues that we need to avoid comparing nations as if they were analytically equivalent units and to take seriously broader geopolitical considerations. Building on this, I further argue that we need to examine the very concept of the nation as the primary political unit for understanding and then addressing inequality. And this is because empires and not nations were the dominant modes of political organization at the time that such inequalities were being established. As such, focusing our analyses around the nation state elides the historical processes that are actually produced and reproduce those inequalities, and it distorts our understandings of them. In this talk, I first set out how the nation state has come to be the dominant unit of analysis within the social sciences. I then examine its limitations to adequately account for the production of global inequalities. And I argue for the need to take empires and colonialism seriously. I end with a call for a reparatory social science that not only offers a more adequate account of our contemporary condition, but equally, or perhaps more importantly, is invested in a project of repair and transformation. The emergence of the nation state tends to be associated with the system of sovereign states that came into being in Europe in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. This began a process of the disruption and decline of old empires within Europe at the same time as establishing an expansion of European empires beyond Europe. A brief historical outline of the significance of the nation within the social sciences goes something like this. It is shaped by the North American and French revolutions in the late 18th century. Within Europe, two routes to modern statehood are recognized. The first is the evolution of nation states within the boundaries of existing territorial states, as was the case for most North and Western European countries. The second route established a nation and then a state, as exemplified by the projects of Germany and Italy in the late 19th century. These initial formulations or formations were followed by the establishment of post-colonial states in the period of mass decolonization in the mid to late 20th century. 
While such an account is standard across the social sciences, it's an odd elision that posits a post-colonial state without addressing the process of colonization itself as part of state formation. And if colonization is seen to be a significant context for the emergence of states from the condition of having been colonized, in that they're named as post-colonial states, should this context not also be considered as significant for those states that had colonized others? Why do we regard it as acceptable to simply understand them as nations and not take into account the colonial activities that were significant to their development? What we tend to understand as nations were not nationally bounded polities but they were globally constituted through processes of colonialism and the establishment of empires at a distance. That is, the period that is seen to give rise to the modern state is precisely a period of colonial expansion that saw some European states consolidate their domination over other parts of the world. And yet what is seen as external domination is rarely theorized as a constitutive aspect of the modern state. The period from at least 1648 onwards, for example, is a period of the dominance of Spain and Portugal, primarily in the southern half of the Americas, and of Britain, France, Belgium and the Netherlands, among other European countries, of conquest and domination in the Americas and across Africa and Asia. The forms of domination were varied, from actual conquest followed by settlement in the Americas, southern Africa, New Zealand and Australia, among others, to the establishment of colonial and dependency status elsewhere, for example in India and across Africa and Asia. For my purposes here, the issue is less about the different forms of domination, though these are important in their own terms, but rather with the wholesale erasure of that external domination from the theorization of the modern state in the West. A more adequate conceptual understanding would take seriously the imperial histories that were constitutive of their formation. So what I want to go on to do now is to discuss two examples of states that are presented as nation states while their activities belie their imperial constitution. British politics over recent years has been mired in debates around national sovereignty with one central concern being about rescuing the nation from its involvement in the European project. However, as I've long argued, the British state is not easily understood in straightforward national terms. Britain emerged through an act of union between the kingdoms of England and Scotland in 1707. The long-standing personal union of the Kingdom of England with the Kingdom of Ireland was later formalized through the 1800 Anglo-Irish Act of Union following the brutal repression of the 1798 Irish Rebellion. Whereas Ireland had been in Walsh's terms, a separate, albeit dependent kingdom within a wider British composite state, it was now formally integrated into the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The composite nature of the British state is part of the reason why a simple presentation of a national history is not adequate. Its national histories are several. Another reason is the broader colonial entanglements that come to constitute the British state. By the late 18th century, 
in the aftermath of the loss of the 13 colonies of the US, the Home Office and Foreign Office were established as distinct administrative units. Responsibility for the colonies was initially located within the Home Office, that is under the remit of domestic and not of foreign affairs. So all of this is to say that the territorial boundaries of the British state, as well as its organizational structure, have never been congruent with what many see as the imagined nation. The state was an imperial state, and just as Britain is more adequately understood as an imperial state, so too is Germany. The new German nation came into being in 1871 under the leadership of Otto von Bismarck and Prussia. It involved the intensification of processes of depolonization and Germanification at the borderlands of the new state. The formerly Polish areas that had been annexed by Prussia and then settled by German colonists in the 18th century, as Andy Zimmerman argues, suffered further waves of internal colonization into the 20th century. Our state is a national state, the German sociologist Max Weber asserted, and it is this circumstance which makes us feel we have a right to make this demand. The demand being the expulsion of Polish and Jewish inhabitants and their replacement by German settlers in the borderlands. Weber further goes on to argue that if unification of the nation, rather than becoming a world power, was to be the end point of the political development of the state, then it should have been avoided on grounds of excessive cost. The implication is for Germany not to be left behind in the European game for domination and to become a colonial power in its own right. In this way, we see that Weber's economic nationalism was to be executed through imperial political ambitions and more precisely, through expansion. As such, the national interest is not the construction of a national state, but of an imperial state. In addition to Germany's imperial expansion into the eastern borderland areas, within 13 years of unification, it had also begun the process, as Sebastian Conrad notes, of acquiring the fourth largest colonial empire at the time. This colonial expansion took Germany into Togoland, East Africa, Southwest Africa. In Southwest Africa, the Herero Nama people were effectively exterminated in the desert regions. And Germany also expanded into Samoa and Qingdao in China. There is little consideration, however, of this colonial activity in most discussions of the formation and development of the German state, or then in the sociology of the state. For example, Weber's definition of the state having a legitimate claim to a monopoly of violence is addressed only to the polity as nation and not to the polity as empire. So why does this matter? Why does it matter generally that what are standardly considered as nation states were actually imperial states? And why does it matter in terms of thinking about issues of global inequality? The way in which the state is defined in terms of its contemporary boundaries and historical constitution is central to the shaping of politics in the present. Among other things, it defines who belongs and perhaps more importantly, who has the right to belong. 
the boundaries of the political community and the associated rights of citizenship, for example, are usually imagined to be congruent with the territorial boundaries of the state as understood in national terms. And yet, if, as I've argued, most states in Europe were imperial states as much as they were national states, then the political community of the state is much wider and more stratified than is usually acknowledged. This has implications for contemporary politics, including in terms of who can and should be considered the legitimate object of public policy. The distinction that is made between the nation and empire, however, mitigates against us being able to understand the past in connected terms. Further, the sociological narrative of modernity associated with the expansion of citizenship fails to understand that the consolidation of a nation out of an imperial past involves the removal of some from membership of the polity at the same time as establishing citizenship for others. As I've argued elsewhere, the British Empire was constructed politically through the relations of extraction, that is, taxation. These relations were used to draw resources from colonial subjects into Westminster. However, any redistribution of these resources only occurred within the nation and did not include the colonial constituencies who had contributed to that sum. In this way, the imperial dividend under the control of Westminster was mobilized to support the lives of national citizens and it explicitly excluded colonial ones. The inequalities manifest here were both direct and indirect, both immediate and long-term. The direct inequalities resulted from the simple accumulation of additional wealth and resources for domestic purposes, including reductions in the domestic tax burden of the national population and increased social services available to them. That is, the taxes of colonial subjects were used to mitigate the tax burden domestically, such that the working class and the majority of the middle class in Britain did not pay income tax until the First World War. Colonial subjects in India, for example, had been paying income tax since 1860 and land tax for much earlier, but they were excluded from any redistribution of wealth, even during periods of catastrophic famine. The case against famine relief was made in the fear that if arguments for, for such relief were accepted, then that would lead to arguments for the permanent maintenance of the poor in India. This was at a time when general poor relief was provided as a legal right to the destitute poor in Britain. The indirect inequalities involved the compounded loss suffered by the colonized populations given that the taxes they paid were not spent in the country in which they were raised, but rather were exported to support the British national economy. To put it in anachronistic Keynesian terms, the multiplier had its effects elsewhere while the extraction depressed activity locally. This, I suggest, established the global patterns of inequality that continue through to the present. And this is because what is true of British empire is true of European empires more generally. Now, while not all of Britain's colonies were taxed in the same way, they were all required to subordinate their economies to Britain's national concerns. 
In the period after the Second World War, as Alistair Hines argues, Britain harnessed colonial resources from its remaining empire and it aligned colonial fiscal and monetary policy to the needs of its own national economy. Malaya was the most valuable of Britain's dollar-earning colonies with its exports of rubber and tin. And this was closely followed by the Gold Coast, which was to become Ghana and Nigeria. The dollars earned by these countries through sale of their raw products were put into a dollar pool that was controlled by Britain. In this way, British colonies were made to tie up funds that they might have otherwise used for their own development. From 1946 to 1951, for example, Britain's colonies were required to lend or tie up in London about £250 million. In return, about £40 million was made available to them through the Colonial Development and Welfare Acts. In this way, as David Fieldhouse argued, the colonies were used to protect British citizens from paying for their own post-war reconstruction and were themselves unable to use their own funds to pay for development at home. In a similar manner, as Fanny Pigot and Ndongo Sambasilla state, in the post-war period, French colonies were forced to trade under exclusive arrangements with France, to take on debt at punitive rates, and to participate in a common currency. The imposition of the CFA franc guaranteed France's economic control of the colonies, and it ensured the drain of wealth from the colonies to the metropole. This arrangement continues through to today, despite these countries no longer being formal colonies. This neo-colonial system of domination preserves the advantages of colonialism and maintains the inequalities upon which they were constructed. The imperial dividend that was integral to the construction of post-war welfare states, such as Britain and France, and especially in that period that Piketty calls their trente glorieuses, was also responsible for depressing the economic activity of their colonies and soon to be former colonies. The direct and immediate inequalities consequent of these actions went on to establish longer lasting patterns of global inequality, which cannot be adequately analyzed without taking these connected histories into consideration. From the high point of European empire through to the demise of empire, European states have increasingly invoked welfare as central to their domestic legitimation. However, scholars have systematically failed to examine the relation of colonialism to the development of the national patrimonies that were distributed as welfare. The end of empire did not bring an end to the legacies of its social structures. The patterns of inequality shaping the world are consequent to the legacies of empire and they need to be understood within a connected frame of reference. This leads me to my final section on what a reparatory social science might look like. The concepts and categories that we use in the social sciences are constructed on the basis of particular histories. If those histories don't adequately reflect the past, then the concepts and categories we use will reproduce any associated inequalities. To suggest that global inequality can be addressed through cross-national comparisons 
and not take into account that many of today's nations were either subjugated by other states or were the states doing the subjugation, distorts the data and makes any conclusions meaningless. Although if the conclusions were meaningless, that might not be such a bad outcome. What actually happens is that the meaning attributed to such analyses works to reproduce colonial era inequalities and maintain the status quo. What is needed instead is a reparatory social science committed to undoing the inadequacies baked into our disciplines and working towards a project of transformation and repair. What this would involve as a first step would be to rethink our disciplines by taking modern empire as the unit of analysis rather than the modern nation. Second, it would be to recognize that what we understand as the modern world is actually the colonial global world. Third, taken together, these would enable us more adequately to contextualize events and processes that are often presented as separate and to understand them within a connected frame of reference, one that is committed to repair. I began this talk by describing various global inequalities that confront us. The dominant social scientific position on addressing inequality has promoted redistribution within nation states, but has been timid in addressing inequalities across nation states. Instead, it has argued that inclusive economic growth within each nation will aggregate to an address of global inequalities. However, we now have to confront the fact that economic growth is a process that depletes our planet and that accentuates problems associated with climate change precisely for those people most affected by colonial histories. We cannot evade the issue that colonial drain and the depletion of resources that were integral to modernity are also bound up with our climate crisis and have always been bound up with it. It's just that for a long time, the effects were not as obvious to us in the West or many of us were just less concerned. While being mindful of the need to address the issues that now confront us as we face the imminent threat to the future of our world, we have to remember that our world was built on the destruction of the worlds of others. How do we address the climate catastrophe that is to come as well as the ones that have already been? A post-colonial ethics requires us to hold both questions within a common frame. Recognizing that the entities we understand as nations were actually implicated in a colonial global project enables us to acknowledge different connections between histories and processes that we otherwise thought of as separate. It enables us to consider the relationship between wealth here and poverty over there and to address this inequality within the common frame of national and global redistribution, rather than the more usual considerations of aid or charity or development. As many people have argued, there are no developing countries. There are simply countries in need of repair after colonialism. While much work in development studies naturalizes issues of global inequality, what would that work look like if instead it took more seriously the colonial histories of such inequalities and sought to address them within the framework of repair? 
Mahmoud Mamdani, in his latest book, Neither Settler Nor Native, argues that we need to rethink political community beyond the structures of the nation. For example, understanding the centrality of settler colonialism historically to states that we regard as nations in the present would open up alternative ways of thinking and acting in relation to contemporary movements of occupation and dispossession. Further, acknowledging the colonial global provides us with a different frame through which to understand the inequalities fracturing the urgent need to address the COVID-19 pandemic as a global problem. As Patrizia Lorenzoni argues, five centuries of history resonate in our contemporary pandemic. In amongst all the claims of how the virus doesn't discriminate, we are coming to see how our historically constructed forms of discrimination do affect the outcomes of populations both within countries and globally. A post-colonial reparatory social science provides us with the tools to adequately think through the issues and to come up with more effective solutions. It provides us with the tools for thinking anew about old problems and about new ones. Its purpose is not a scholastic one. That is one that is simply oriented to the production of new knowledge. The new knowledge opens up possibilities of new and different actions. Recognition of the significance of modern empire and the colonial global leads to a more adequate understanding of the structures of inequality that disfigure the worlds we share in common. Situated within a commitment to repair the fractures that have been produced, it has the potential to transform our world. A reparatory social science provides the space for us all to be invested in this project to make a world that works for us all. The question that I'll leave you with is do enough of us want a world that works for all of us? Thank you. Thank you very much, Gurminder. That was an excellent talk. Um, very compelling insights and discuss. Um, I will now open the floor to questions from the audience. Please type your brief questions into the Q&A box and I will try to pose as many of your questions as possible. I kindly ask that you include your name and affiliation or location where possible. So I have first question is from Akshay Magadum, a research associate from NITI IAOG, New Delhi. They write, even though historical factors, reasons are important to reflect present conditions, the idea of modernity and nation states and its associate elements are figments of human imaginations and man-made. Until we see all humans as one and equal normatively, how can we use reimagined states and nations to solve other people's challenges? So rather than going back in history, if we can see humans as sentient beings first and not part of narrow nations, will we be able to solve the increasing challenges we are facing? So I guess the question there is about how we see humans. 
I mean, I think, you know, so it's a, an incredibly valid question. The issue for me is that I'm a social scientist and I'm interested in thinking about the ways in which concepts and categories have been developed within the social sciences and the ways in which those concepts embody a particular history and a, partic and a recognition of a particular history. And given that I think that the history that is, is embodied in the standard social scientific concepts is a parochial history, my question is how, if we were to broaden the horizons of the histories we acknowledge, what resources would be available to us in order to be able to transform those concepts and categories. So it's fine to think that have a normative position that we're all equal and we ought to treat each other well. That's, you know, that, that's a sort of general understanding. But as a social scientist, what are the tools that I think we need in order to be able to both rethink how we understand problems located in the present, how they've been configured historically, and how by rethinking them, we might be able to sort of intervene more effectively in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. So the second question comes from Jean Carrick, who's an alumni from the LSE's Social Policy Department, um, now based in France. They ask, in the Global South, an increasing number of right-based right demands are addressed to the states on the basis of citizenship, what James Holston defines as insurgent citizenship. What does this phenomenon entail for the analysis of citizenship inequalities and belonging to the state? So I think it's important for people to use whatever resources are at their disposal in terms of making the demands that it's necessary to make at any particular time. My engagement with sort of questions of citizenship is really to ask the, the question that whilst we understand citizenship to be a matter of inclusion, the category itself comes into being in a process of exclusion. And if we don't, I, those who come to be recognized as citizens is always contrasted against those who don't. And these things map both onto states, but also other factors such as race, gender, etc. over time. And so unless we take the exclusion seriously in terms of thinking how they structurally configure the idea of concept, uh, the idea of citizenship, rather than simply um, you know, that, it, that these exclusions can't always be remedied through simple inclusion, that the exclusions have to cause us to rethink what the category itself is and what actions might be needed in order to transform it. So I think politically people have used any number of strategies in order to widen the scope of politics. And then the question is, and what next? Yes, very, very true. So our next question comes from Andres Shoai, a postdoctoral researcher from CEU University in Madrid. And their question is, is post-colonial thought part of more of a more general understanding of social matters? Or does it take post-coloniality as the main analytic category for all analysis? So I take the post-colonial as a theoretical provocation 
to always consider the colonial in what it is that is being addressed. So I don't understand the post-colonial as a time after colonialism because it's not clear to me, and as I try to sort of say in my talk, that we are after colonialism. We might be after the end of formal colonialism, but the structures of colonialism continue into the present. If you think about trade deals, relationship, financial relationships, economic inequalities, and so on, and until they are transformed, we won't be after this stage. So post-colonial comes about as a category associated with a tradition of thought inaugurated by people like Edward Said, Homi Baba, Gayatri Spivak and others. And I don't take everything that they have to say, but I do take the questions that they have asked as central to rethinking my own engagement with social sciences. So I would say that the post-colonial is a provocation to think about colonialism. I think that's a very good formulation. I, I quite like that as a provocation. Um, the next question comes from James Chidiyankandath, sorry for my mispronunciation, um, Institute of Commonwealth Studies at the University of London. They ask, as you show, Nationalism is ineffably marked and shaped by colonialism. Does that mean that a truly post-colonial world is only possible in a post-national world? I mean, that's a huge question, and I'm not sure I can answer that here. I mean, I would say that Mahmoud Mamdani's latest book, Neither Settler Nor Native, is really exploring this very issue, saying that, you know, we, we have committed ourselves in the context of a sort of political context of modernity to think of the nation as the unit of belonging, identity, etc. What if we were to imagine a world beyond the nation? What would that look like? What would those sorts of possibilities open up? So I think, I, I think all I can do is sort of recommend you to read Mahmoud Mamdani's Neither Settler Nor Native. It's a brilliant exploration of precisely that question. Excellent, thank you. Um, the next question is from Andres Castro, a postdoc um, from the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research in Germany. It's fantastic people put in where they're writing from to see what a global audience we have. So Andres asks, how can, how can we articulate these insights with local strikes like the ones in, happening in Latin America, Colombia or Chile? While I see a potential for academic research to engage with these ideas, it is not clear to me how local reclamations can benefit from these reflections on a practical level. So I think in part the work that I'm doing is intervening in academic or the way in which scholars have sought to understand inequality and find solutions to address forms of inequality. And the argument that I'm making is really that the majority of work that's done on trying to locate inequality is locates it in the context of the nation. And yet, as I sought to demonstrate in the talk, these inequalities haven't been constructed in nations or by nations, but rather by imperial processes. And if we don't understand those imperial processes and colonial processes, then we won't really get a sense 
of what those inequalities are in the present. And in terms of Latin America, you know, there's a way in which we also need to think of Latin America as settler colonies. Like the majority of countries across the Americas, to the extent that it's European descended populations who are dominant within them, one of the questions that is provoked through this is then how are indigenous peoples and people of African descent to be understood within those uh, contexts? It's not simply a national question, that is also a colonial question. And so even there, you cannot understand inequality in Brazil or Colombia without understanding the colonial formation of those countries and the multiple levels of inequality that come effaced if we only think of them as nations. Thank you. This is a provocative question from Indre Saite. Thank you for a fresh, refreshing talk. Do you consider the Soviet Union a case of an empire, not just its predecessor, the Russian Empire? Eastern Europe is still struggling with the lasting impact of the Soviet period, though in Central Asia it is re remembered with nostalgia. I have to admit, I don't know enough about the Soviet Union or Russia to really be able to sort of uh, address that question. I think one of the things that's interesting to look at is the fact that, you know, one of the distinctions that I've been making around empires is a distinction between empire as domination and empire as conquest and extraction. And the one aspect of the difference between those two types of empires is that one empire is a contiguous empire. It's an empire with a core that gradually expands outwards and incorporates more territories within it. And in incorporating those territories and populations within its form, it also includes people into the order of rule. Whereas the second form of empire, which is an empire of conquest and extraction, is an empire at distance. So you have the core in one part of the world and the colonies in another part of the world. And the populations of the colonies are not included in the order of rule of the metropole, but nonetheless are the basis of extraction. Now, I don't know enough about the Soviet Union or Russia to know what the relationship between the center and the peripheries of that vast region would be, but that would certainly be an interesting question to explore. Yes, it is. Um, so uh, we have so many questions. Um, I'm going to try to get through all of them. So we have a question from Arvinder Bindra in London. Do you think that under repertory um, social science, will this also address immigration from the former colonies trying to escape the inequalities by coming to the Western world? So I think people move in extreme circumstances, the majority of people, you know, we have this idea that migration is such a common phenomenon. And yet I think, you know, it's a very tiny proportion of the world's population that actually moves and is able to move. And in fact, those who do move are often the most privileged in situations of vast inequality. And so in that context, I don't see, this is partly why I don't focus on migration as a solution to inequality, because that only addresses those who are able to leave. What I want, what I'm interested in is actually addressing the inequality that forces people to have to move. 
And so I think in the context of the work that I'm trying to do around this idea of a reparatory social science invested you know, in a project of repair, is to actually repair the fractures that make places unlivable for people, whether that's the consequence of climate change, whether that's a consequence of the production of war, whether that's a consequence of these sorts of things. And then in that sense, migration will become much less of an issue because to be frank, most people would rather live where they are and that compulsion to move occurs in very specific sorts of circumstances. Okay, thank you. This is a question from the Facebook um, stream. It says, it's from Isabel Warwick University. She asks, I'm wondering if part of repertory social science is, is it possible that scholars from the colonies, non-Western, non-white, can explore theoretical frameworks developed in the European empires? So I guess it's about the role of scholars from outside empire to shape the theoretical frameworks? I mean, I think there are lots of people in, involved in these projects. And in a talk, it's not possible to sort of reference everybody whose work I've drawn on in order to be able to develop the arguments, but I've certainly drawn the work of scholars from around the world in order to be able to make the arguments that I'm making. And in that context, it's about building resources that can be made available for as many of us to be able to use in order to address the problems that, that we face within the world. So in that sense, I don't think um, theory has an ethnicity. Theory is something that we can all participate in, in terms of trying to develop those very resources that enable us to, to construct a world that works differently to how it currently does. Okay, thank you. This is a question, um, slightly provocative. It says, it's from Dereje Tarek and Woody. A lot has happened in the world since the colonial period. Do you really think colonialism, post-colonialism is viable and relevant even as an analytical tool? It's certainly true. I mean, it's true and not true because if you take seriously what I was arguing, then whilst formal colonialism may be over, the structures of colonialism continue to shape and configure the way in which the world is organized, and in particular, the inequalities that shape the world. So in that sense, I certainly do believe that European colonialism over the last 500 years has constituted the world as it currently is. So it's not as if it was something that happened in the past and now it's over and we're in a new world. We're actually still living the consequences of that world. And until we recognize that, we're only ever going to be tinkering with solutions as opposed to really addressing those inequalities. Because if we don't recognize where the inequalities have come from and how they've been configured, we really can't do anything to address the problems that they instantiate. Absolutely. This is a question from Rohan Chopra, a student at Ashoka University in Delhi. They ask, contemporary epistemological cultures present in the university favor a Eurocentric version of what constitutes development. Even the most rudimentary debates about capitalism, at least in its current form, fail to acknowledge that these models derive from a teleological sense of history which European nation states have gone through. Do we have a more comprehensive, holistic model of development, in quotation marks, 
that is derived from particular cultures that post-colonial societies could use instead of notions of development that expect these societies to fall in line with a Hegelian sense of universal history. I mean, that is sort of what my work has, has been about for much of the time. I mean, I've just written an article recently that you might be interested in looking at, which is called Colonial Global Economy. And what it tries to do is to resituate the ways in which we have understood capitalism, you know, because the, most theories of capitalism present it as something that emerges in the West, then spreads around the world and gradually incorporates other countries into it. And other places are seen to be not quite as advanced as these places, which is why they need development. But that's precisely to, to work with this Eurocentric logic that Rohan is talking about. And instead, if we were to understand that capitalism itself is constituted through colonialism, we would understand uh, how the economic system has been produced, not as something that happens in Europe, but has been constituted globally through European colonialism. And that provides a different way, again, of thinking about how these questions and problems are framed. Thank you. This is a question from Birgit Popu from Tallinn University in Estonia. They're asking, how can we push for this change as social scientists? We know that the greatest changes have been brought about by people on the ground via activism, being part of social movements. As a social scientist, do you think we need to have an activist role too? I mean, I don't think this work is going to only be done within the university. But one of the things that we can do within the university is to amplify ideas and solutions that come from all sorts of places. So I don't think that knowledge is produced only in the university. I think knowledge is produced in lots of places. And one specific role that the university have is to validate and amplify those knowledges. And so in that sense, it's always about working both within and without and thinking about how we make those links and thinking about how we're responsive to what's going on elsewhere. The work that I've done around sort of arguments around reparations, for example, have drawn inspiration from, for example, the CARICOM uh, movement. So the countries in the Caribbean who have sought to demand reparations from Britain for British colonization in that area and to think about what that would actually mean. So there are movements around the world calling for these differences and these changes. And also the issue around climate change and this idea that, you know, now our world is under threat. We're concerned about climate change. And yet there have been indigenous peoples around the world who've been agitating and arguing and struggling that actually our world depends on the destruction of their world. And so what responsibility do we take for that relationship at the same time as being concerned now that our world is under threat? And so in that sense, I think you know, that we have to hold those questions together. And that can only be done both through work within the academy, but also by listening to what's happening in struggles and movements beyond the academy as well. Thank you. If I can throw in a plug for the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity, we are that space that brings together that the knowledges from academia together with knowledges from practitioners and movement builders. So I think this is exactly what you're saying in terms of how do we create those knowledges, but also make those links. 
So our next question is from Eduardo Enriquez, doctor in Latin American studies from Ecuador. And he asks, what is the relationship of your repertory post-colonial perspective with the capitalist mode of production? Well, if I can just mention this article again, it's open access, so it's it's available you know, freely online and it's called Colonial Global Economy Towards a Theoretical Reconstruction of Political Economy. And it's precisely trying to do that. It's addressing the histories that most people acknowledge as central to the emergence of capitalism and arguing for us to need to re-theorize capitalism with colonialism at its heart. So in that sense, I don't see capitalism as something that exists separate to colonialism, but I think capitalism is better understood if we understood it as what colonialism produces. If we understood capitalism as something that is produced out of colonialism, we would be much better able to understand contemporary inequalities, which continue to reproduce colonial era inequalities than always thinking about these as somehow separate to the logic of capitalism, etc. And so in that sense, yeah, that's uh, what I would say. Excellent. And we have another question. It's from Henry Cotton, University of Chicago, LSE alum. Given how compelling and clear your argument is, could you say a little more about why the contemporary mainstream social sciences have failed to fully acknowledge and accept this post-colonial framework? As you see it, what are the major barriers impeding the wider circulation of post-colonial scholarship into the mainstream? I mean, that's a difficult question to answer because I agree. I think that I do present the arguments quite clearly. I don't use jargon. It's sort of laid out there. As to why mainstream social science doesn't take on these arguments, well, you would have to ask them. And one of the things that I would note, actually, is that very few colleagues who work in similar fields will engage with the work that I do. So it's almost like if an argument is made and you think perhaps it's too strong for you to deal with, the best way of dealing with it is to ignore it. So I'm convinced that the scholars whose work I critique are aware of the critique that is made. And one of the reasons why I know they're aware of the critique that's made is because sometimes I'm in environments where they are also present and, and I make this critique in front of them, but they refuse to respond, to engage, to, to, to tell me that maybe I'm wrong, but I'm happy for them to tell me that because then that's the basis of a conversation and we can develop our understandings through that engagement, through that dialogue, but they won't engage. So then, you know, this is a question that you should really be putting to mainstream social scientists. I mean, I do think I'm mainstream myself. I don't see the work that I do as in any way peripheral. I'm dealing with the central topics and themes of the social sciences, but to other people who also deal with these, but who don't take colonialism seriously, it's time to start asking them, why aren't you engaging with these questions? Why aren't you engaging with this perspective? How would that make a difference to what you're arguing otherwise? Very important points. Exactly, why are they not engaging? And I think what you just said, you know, about ignoring it rather than critiquing it is an interesting tactic um, because they don't want to open up perhaps, you know, some of those conversations. So we're now um, near the end of our time. And 
I think this has been a fascinating lecture and a discussion. I'm so pleased to see so many of the different questions that have been asked um, from, as I said, around the globe. I think one question that often comes up um, that a lot of um, people sometimes ask is, what is the, you know, what, you know, we talk about post-coloniality and post-colonial kind of um, critiques. What is the approach, could you say a little bit more about the approach of decolonial or decolonizing and how you see that working in the social sciences? So again, I mean, I draw on the resources both of post-colonial theory and also those people who work within the realm of decoloniality. So I use the work of Maria Logones as much as I use the work of sort of Spivak. And I think these traditions provide resources for us to be able to use as we see fit. So I don't align myself either with sort of the, the post-colonial tradition or the decoloniality tradition or any of these. I think all of them are seeking to think about how we understand the world or how the world has been understood without, without an address of colonialism. What difference would it make to think about these questions by taking colonialism seriously and what then opens up as a consequence of doing that? And in that way, I think there's as much to learn from those scholars who are invested in the idea or the paradigms of post-coloniality as with decoloniality. I would just want to make the argument that use the resources that you find useful and don't worry so much about those labels. Brilliant, thank you. We have one last question. This is the last question I'm going to take. It's from Andres Castro. Um, do you think there are discipline specific traditions that block engagement with post-colonial theory, for instance, in demography or economics? I think there are disciplines that have perhaps come late to the conversation, but there's a lot of work being done in the field of economics, beginning to address the issue of race within economics, but also there's uh, on Twitter, at least there's a collective of people called decolonizing economics who are trying to sort of think through these issues. And the people I, I was sort of referencing earlier, you know, Nodongo Sambasilla and others have certainly worked within that context of thinking about the colonial as central to thinking about the economy and thinking then about what difference that would then make. So I think that, you know, that these questions are relevant to all disciplines and how they engage with them has been perhaps uneven, but there's certainly scope for work to be done across those paradigms. Thank you. So we are now at the end of our event. It has been a great pleasure for me and I hope for everyone in the audience to participate in the inaugural Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity keynote lecture. Thank you very, very much. Reminder for your timely analysis and your vision for change. You speak very clearly, I think, you know, and, and very compellingly. Um, and so thank you um, for being our first speaker of the inaugural of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity keynote lecture, which will become an annual event. And thank you to everyone in the audience who joined us today. If you'd like to know more about the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program and the International Inequalities Institute, our work and our events, I hope you will follow us on social media and visit the web pages on the LSC website. Thank you again. And until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, night. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>